30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is a ritual. What are words for when no one listens anymore? So saith the chorus of Missing Persons' 1982 new wave banger, Words. Whereas once a tiny percentage of any culture's population was literate, now the Western world is inundated with words. We communicate via text, scroll through news articles and opinion pieces, and surf the toxic swamps of social media where words, written, recorded, captioned, and commented, bombard us from every direction. And yet, even with all these words, it often feels like nobody's listening. The pundits talk themselves in circles, while the world's problems march on entirely unfazed. Witty protest signs and fiery tweets can spread through the digital discourse as memes and discussion, but they struggle to move the needle on primary elections and horrifying political events. Again, to quote the missing persons, media overload bombarding you with action, it's getting near impossible to cause distraction. And yet, all hope is not lost. Somehow, through all the chaos and confusion, certain words are able to slip through and hit you right in the heart, in a moment, shifting how you see the world and changing your understanding of what's possible. That is, after all, one of the highest goals of art. Anthony McPherson is one of my favorite word warriors, a champion slam poet, an outspoken activist who takes the social media regularly to engage in this war of the words, He recently performed in Louisville, Kentucky, the night before this podcast was recorded, where, as he usually does, I watched him sway an audience with his words, expertly tugging at their heartstrings and poking and prodding them towards new perspectives on climate, race, and the audacious power of love. Stay all the way to the end to hear McPherson read a poem, but let's jump in right now for this freewheeling conversation on politics, poetry, and the way words work together as we learn how to use our words. Mr. Anthony McPherson, welcome to Ritual Space. Hey, hey. What's our magic word going to be? Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders. Yeah. All right. Nice and simple. Nice and simple. No, the count no. of three. All right. One, two, three. Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Sanders. Now, I don't think we've ever had a magic word quite like Bernie Sanders. Can you you let me know why that, that rose to your mind? Oh, you know, I, um, I wish I was the type of person who started their day journaling. Mm. I think that would be very healthy and uh, great for my process. But unfortunately where I'm at now is I'm the type of person who starts their day watching the news and screaming right and there's uh this issue where um a a self-identified socialist i forget their name they uh won the democratic primary in buffalo uh but the democratic incumbent um is not like they're doing a uh, a write-in campaign right and i'm just thinking like 
how if someone who wasn't a progressive, like with if, if like a more of like a Pelosi type, mm-hmm. um, were to have won Buffalo, and the progressive were to like do a writing campaign, they'd be smeared for uh, dividing the Democratic Party. And yeah, so I feel like Bernie Sanders as a magic word. I, my intent was just to to have people think about why, because there's a lot of people who want progressives to toe the line and uh, more centrists, you know, they're allowed to do things like be sore losers and why that is. And just because, you know, the the planet's on the line and, Mm. you know, people's, like rich people's paychecks just aren't as important as like having a planet to live on. So there's, before we had Bernie Sanders, and I, I mean, he wasn't quite as progressive, but do you remember Howard Dean? Uh, the name sounds quite familiar. So Howard Dean was running in 2004, I want to say. I think I'm getting this right. I'm pretty sure it's 2004. So it was it was when um, we ended up running, God, I can't even remember his name, that uh, John Kerry. Like John oh, yeah, Kerry yeah, lost yeah. against against George Bush. But in the, the right. primaries, uh, Howard Dean was, was, was ahead and he was very progressive. And then he won Iowa or he got like very like, he got a great result in Iowa and was excited about it. Was giving his little rally and like let out this scream of like, "Whoa, you know, we're doing it!" And then the media was all like, "The scream, the scream, the scream!" And like it became this whole weird news story that kind of like tanked his momentum. And it was such an innocuous thing. I mean, like politicians say so much worse stuff all the time. So I think it's a really interesting way, especially with Bernie Sanders and these other progressive candidates, where something happens in the narrative that twisted and it's almost like like a rumor mill like you know what i think it might be it's um back in 2004 i remember that though yeah moment and at the time i thought oh that is so unpresidential someone who's going to run the country has to be of a top tier intellect. There's mm. no way that we could let no woos allowed. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, imagine a president saying something as controversial as "woo." Oof. Yeah, absolutely impossible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we had George W. Bush as a president at the time, like the epitome of presidentialness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a uh, it was a foolish uh, notion that I had. I wonder if that was uh, a notion shared by other people, and that's why his momentum tanked. Well, I think there's something, you know, like we're, we're going to talk about words and the power of words today because I, I saw you perform a wonderful poetry set last night and you talked about this idea um, of, you know, if the poem can connect with one person in the audience and create that change, which mm-hmm. is something that, you know, this podcast is about of like, if we can get the listeners to do this one little thing differently, can that ripple expand and grow larger and actually create change? Love it. And I think in, in the poem as I perceived it, you were both saying this is like a hopeful, positive thing and also pointing to your like own naivete of like the world is on fire, climate change, all of these intense political issues that we can't deal with. And I'm up here doing poems, doing poems, like, woo, you know, (laughs) like, look at, look at this. So there is something though about the way that language changes our reality. And especially in terms of politics, I think with Bernie Sanders, it did cultivate this hope in people, but then there was this counter narrative that really kind of shit on it 
and put it down. I mean, like, you know, like, like New York Times headlines where it's like, Pete Buttigieg gets fourth in primary. And it's like, why is that the headline? Like, right. that's that's very weird. I'll never forget that. And then on the other side, um, obviously, you know, we could, we could do like 10 podcast episodes about the way that Donald Trump uses language mm. and boils things down to a nickname that, you know, or or something like fake news, which was originally – a thing that was a problem that was helping him. And then it became fake news is anything that I don't like. Like there's all these ways that language is bent. Mm. So as somebody who uses words and is concerned about the state of the world, what do we say? What do we say? Um, Well, you know, I notice sometimes when I go and and do shows and I discuss climate change, um, the audience is very turned off. Mm -hmm. They're not interested and I think there might be things like climate change. I've got rent to pay, right. you know, short term. I mean, long term problems. I got short term problems. And, um, you know, you got to, you know, if you have a deadline, you've got to see to that even, you know, if it's at the detriment of like, I don't know. Like my, my worst fear is like having a kid and um, I'm, my short term problem is I need to meet this deadline. And then the long term problem is I'm not spending enough time with my kid or something like right. that. Right. Yeah. Um, so anyway. But then if I, you know, I'll grade the set and and talk about like the hopefulness and like my love life and because I'm in this really awesome relationship, now their ears are perked up and they're like, it's like, what do you say? You say uh, things that aren't going to help the situation. You say things that are cream puff and... Uh, <laughs> And then nothing changes. I I think it's more like, how do we listen? You know? Mm. And it's like, you can't really make anybody listen. I mean, I guess you could like do something gimmick, like some guerrilla theater, like start doing poems and, or, you know, and something brilliant to catch, but they're eventually going to tune out. Uh, So we just just have to be brave enough to like, look at uncomfortable truths. Well, and I think the flip side of that is, Everyone knows the hyper-political person who is kind of a Debbie Downer because it's always like, oh, this is this is not good enough and this is a problem and this is a problem and this is a problem. And that person is speaking about real things that are real issues. But if they're in a social context, eventually everyone else is like, bro, we're just trying to eat pizza right now. Like, <laughs> like we get it. Capitalism's fucked. We're not going to solve that. We just want to eat some pizza and like have a good time tonight. Like. Yeah, like where are the words that can be helpful and how are the words that even when they're true are still falling on, um, I'm not going to say deaf ears, um, <laughs> but uh, they're, they're still not making an impact because it becomes a cliche even. I think that's even one of the things too is there's these truths like the oil companies are destroying the world and everyone rolls their eyes and is like, yeah, okay, smoke weed in a dorm room, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's very true. We're just so... We've heard it too many times that it kind of lacks the power that it should have to to say, like, the government's corrupt and killing us. So what's the question? I don't know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, I'm like listening. This isn't a podcast with questions. This is a podcast with ideas that just swirl around in, in, a, in a murky stew of, of thought. Here, I'll give you a question to help you out. Um Speak a little bit more about what you just described of like you're you're trying to connect with an audience and you have you have two goals. One is to give them a hopeful message that is inspiring, and another is to talk about a serious issue like climate change that is depressing and is a bummer. And if you just like you said, if you just talk about climate change the whole time, you 
see them turn off and you lose them. So how do you think about connecting and kind of mixing these two uh, poles? Yeah, you know, I wonder, like, I need to know more about history. Like, how did the Revolutionary War, like, happen? Like, because, you know, tea taxes, it's really not that big of a deal. Whereas, like, the health of Earth, you know, it, it literally affects Republicans, Democrats, Americans, non-Americans, people you love and people you hate. Uh, but tea was enough, you know? And it's like, I wonder if there needs to be just like more incentive than survival, like something as superficial as um, excitement. Like the reason I write about climate change and stuff isn't just because it's important, mm -hmm. but also... I like a good fight. Yeah. It's why I slam, you know, like even though I, I definitely don't need to slam anymore. Um, I still like to just go in the ring, but now I feel like the, the, the slam is climate change. Like I always like to slam against poets far better than myself. Um, and then like, if there's a tie, I'll even do a tiebreaker just cause, uh, not because I want to prove myself, but like that thrill of the fight, you know, like I'm the type of person who will listen to the eye of the tiger and cry. So I only listen to it like once a year, you know, save it up. Yeah. So it's like, you know, like, why don't you want to fight? You know, like when, when uh, Nina Turner lost um, in Ohio, I was so surprised. Who's Nina Turner? Nina Turner. Um, she um, was I think, a state senator in Ohio and then was on Bernie Sanders' campaign, like mm. one of the top folks, and is uh, one of their most powerful um, messengers and speakers, and is goals in a lot of ways, and had a lot of name recognition, but, um, and was ahead like, I don't know, something like 35 uh, points, and then Hillary Clinton endorsed uh, the corporate Democrat, and in that last month, um, it was just an overflow of donations from oh, super PACs yeah. and, uh, Nina ended up losing by, I think it was like five points or something. Um, I'm, I, I'm not an encyclopedia. I don't remember the exact number, but you know, when, when Bernie lost, I got depressed, but when Nina lost, I got really excited. Like, wow, they, we're fighting like the forces of evil, i.e. like mm -hmm. human greed. It's not going to be fair and it's going to be extremely tough. And like, yo, we're like in for the fight of our lives, not just our lives, but like, if you don't care about yourself, like, like our children's 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 lives, like, and we're, we can do it. Like we can fight, you know, I'm mean, like, I know like life is hard and stuff, but you know, yeah, like we've all got problems. And on top of that, there's this. It's like we're like everyone in humanity is in the Avengers and Galactus is eating the planet. Like, how cool we get to be Avengers. Like, let's do it. But I think the problem is that a lot of the stuff we're facing is abstract in a way that it's removed from people's day to day experience, mm. which makes it both on the one hand easy to ignore and then also for somebody else to like mutate and change. So it's a, it's a weird world right now. I, I saw like the perfect tweet where it was saying, we live in a world where millions of people are dying of a disease that people are convinced is not real. Mm. And they're refusing to get a vaccine that they're afraid of that millions of people have received safely. Mm. So like what a weird flip that is that there's people that are saying, 
COVID's not real, but instead of taking this vaccine, I should eat horse paste and that's (laughs) going to be a better idea. Or that, that climate change, which I mean, you know, everyone goes outside, like (laughs) (laughs) everyone goes outside. Rural America also affected by climate change. And yet they're convinced that like, trans people going into the wrong bathroom is is the real issue it's it's a very <laughs> topsy-turvy world where i think yeah. with these abstractions you end up it's very easy to switch things around whereas you know if there's a a nail in your foot you're like i'm pretty sure there's a nail in my foot i know which foot it's in like i'm aware of the problem i need i know what i need to do to solve it it's a lot more present so yeah you know i, I think i saw something recently where it's like a prescription of insulin and uh, where is it? The UK, I believe it was. Uh, it translates to about six dollars, and then uh, in America, it's like ninety-six dollars. Yeah. And I guess you know people don't need insulin every day, but the people who do need it, you know. But I guess it's like you know you can't exist in both the UK and the United States, so you're just you're just like yeah, it's it's expensive. Um, and so maybe what we need to say is just like the good things that other places in the world are doing. Um, and, you know, you can say, well, that, that country's also doing something bad. I mean, America does good things and bad things as well. You know, people need to go to the ambulance and it uh, costs like 900 bucks. I saw someone say, uh, the ambulance is not your personal taxi to the hospital. I'm like, then what is it? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think think it's literally that. Yeah. Uh, you know, in my set, I talked about how twice this year New York flooded severely and maybe people just think, oh, that was a rainstorm. But I don't know, like I've lived there 12 years and I've never seen floods like that. I mean, I've seen two hurricanes and uh, I think three mass blizzards, but not summer floods, you know. So going back to what you said about the Revolutionary War and the the Boston Tea Party. Yeah. I think the things are that, that that come to mind from living in Massachusetts and being subjected to lots of uh, Revolutionary War history as a, as a child, mm-hmm. there's a pressure that was building over time. And it was a pressure that was largely in the rich, wealthy merchant class. I don't mm-hmm. think they were quite the like tycoons and billionaires of today, but they were definitely mm-hmm. an elevated class. And so I get the impression that at the moment when those powers care about something, that's when people will get suddenly whipped up into a froth because it will be on the news networks all the time and it will be a more urgent thing. It's a good point. And they'll probably, we're getting to the era, I think you said this in your set a few times last night, but like COVID was a dress rehearsal. Like mm. we're going to hit more and more crises and they will be compounding. So it won't just be like, oh, we're just dealing with this pandemic, but it's like, the shipping problems have caused other problems have caused global instability, which leads to more pandemics, which leads to, oh, this whole part of the country's on fire. So that food is no longer available. Mm-hmm. And so the Boston Tea Party moment, we're probably not there yet, but there will be something where it's like wheat riots because there was just bad drought throughout Iowa and Kansas, wherever else we grow wheat. And right. so suddenly that's the moment when you have revolutions, when, uh, when bread becomes expensive. Mm-hmm. Wow, such good points. Like, yeah, it was like back in the day, it was only like land-owning white dudes who could, you know, vote. I don't know what voting was like. Um, 
you know, like for senators and stuff un, under British rule. But it's like they have the power, they have the press and stuff. But maybe, you know, maybe it's naivete, but like the internet could counter that. But then again, you know, I've been on social media since 2006. Um, I was actually late to Facebook. I never had a MySpace. But um Oh, you missed out. It was glorious. MySpace was cool. No, no. I, oh, yeah. I, it was one of the things that I would like go check and I would have like no I was like I would go to the college that I wasn't attending, I would just like go to a college's like computer lab yeah. and I would like check my email and I have like two emails and one of them's like spam and then I would like check MySpace and I would have no messages and I'm like, uh, all right. And the AOL connection. Yeah. Did you ever have a Zanga? No, I didn't have a Zanga. <laughs> My best friend in high school, Cherie, had a Zanga and always begged me to get one. Eventually, in, in MySpace, and then she succeeded in getting me to get Facebook. Um, and yeah, the, the, I bring that up because I've never had any issues with like community standards mm -hmm. until I was like, maybe Trayvon Martin shouldn't have gotten killed. Uh, you can't post well, for wow. a day, you know? I'm like, going to have to censor that out of the podcast. Oh, like, oh gosh. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jeepers. Apple Music that's, and Spotify are coming for me now. That's so meta. Yikes. And by meta, I mean capitalism. Wow. By meta, you don't mean Facebook's new name? Oh, no. I'm drowning <laughs> <laughs> in the awesomeness of this moment. Uh, and soon we'll be drowning in water. Okay. Water um, that's on fire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, meta. Oof. I, I wanted to talk to you about that, but I can't even remember what my point was. Um, we're talking about social media and Trayvon Martin. No, that was the yeah, first but I mean, no, I had an idea to talk to you about meta, but we'll just stay present. Um, yeah. So it's like, I was like, you know, with the internet, we'll, you know, maybe we have something like the amount of weight that, um, only land owners had back in the day, but these community standards ever shifting, and I think, you know, did I hate Donald Trump tweeting? Yes. Did I hate Donald Trump? Yes. Did I hate uh, the things he said and what it stirred? Yes. But when he got banned on Twitter, I was like, dang, if the, if the billionaire president's getting banned, uh, I, I don't think this bodes well for leftists at all. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because like, I think the Revolutionary War thing is, is an interesting parallel yeah. because there's this idea of like, there was a lot of pamphlets. It was literally like Paul Revere and people be like, hey, yo, check out my new chat book. I think right. fuck the British. Here, read it. And like people handing British. that to each other. And then people like apparently hanging out in pubs and standing on street corners and being like, oh, this is some bullshit. And then that, you know, like we should go down to the courthouse and protest this thing. And that like leads up to these, these moments. And I guess we still have you know, outrage cycles that will happen, but it's a totally different thing. Like an outrage cycle that's spins through Twitter kind of like doesn't have the same effect in the real world. Um, at least on the big things it can make somebody, it can make an individual person's life really shitty <laughs> really quickly. But it seems like we could be like Coca-Cola, we're mad at this thing. And they're like, uh, okay, we'll change our avatar to something that's good. And then everyone's like, we're distracted by something else. And like, and I, I, I feel like this is something that I wanted to talk with you about because you, you know, you, you have a big TikTok following and a lot of it is responding to racists. You are, yeah. you are in the discourse and like what motivates you to do that? Do you feel like there's this battle that like we can kind of shift through these responses or how, how do you approach that work? You know, 
I used to be a real piece of garbage. And, you know, like I thought Martin Luther King cured femini- uh, feminism. I thought Martin Luther King cured racism. And I want a shirt that says Martin Luther, Luther King, King cured, cured feminism. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. That was a, a slip of the tongue. No, but Martin Luther King cured racism it was over. He Thanos did away. And uh, feminism wasn't necessary because women can vote. Like I was a real piece of piece of work. You were from Oklahoma. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like I thought I was one of the good ones. Oh my goodness, it was a whole mess. And um, you know, I just I started to actually it was poetry that helped me through that. I um, would go to the New Yorkian Poets Cafe and see perspectives from gay people and women and uh, trans folks and. Um, people with various disabilities and, you know, just experiences of humanity that I've, I I can't comprehend because, you know, there's just like with every demographic, there's just like infinite little unique experiences that are unique to that demographic. So it's always, it's always extremely enlightening. And I like to believe, so like I, that's the, the New York and they're what, 120 folks. Uh, the internet, TikTok, you know, even though I'm extremely shadow banned, um, the videos tend to get even on the worst days, like 10K, which is a lot more than at the New Eureka Poets Cafe. And like, yo, you know, maybe the other people who are still, you know, in, in the garbage state um, can be reached. And I'm like, maybe poetry, um, maybe poetry is like, you know, has a magic to it. I do believe that, but I also believe there is an efficiency in just speaking mm-hmm. to people. And I actually like to blend the line between just speaking and spoken word poetry. Right. Um, so you kind of like sneak it in there, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, I don't want you to be as crappy as I used to be, but then it's also like, I say, uh, in the world of alt facts, the truth is poetry. Mm-hmm. And, Everything is just so. I see so many weird takes that I'm. I'm like, okay. It's also part of me keeping a journal uh, of what reality, in fact, is. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I, I saw someone today online who um, said, like, assuming all of the climate change science is real, what do we expect Congress to fix it by taxing us more? And it's like, you are not the tax demographic for this. You know, it's, it's, it's a handful of organizations doing the vast majority of this. You are not a gigantic oil company. No one's like coming after you. We're not gonna do like a soccer mom van tax. Like it's the people who produce the vans. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah. and, And there's this weird idea that, I mean, as, as like a teen anarchist, it's always weird when I find myself having to root for the Democrats and for the government because there's so many ways in which the government is excessive and problematic and bad. But there's this really nefarious idea that's come around that the government is this overreaching bad thing and if it would just go away, we'd be so happy when really there's these incredible, awful corporate powers that are shifting everything, but in a less visible way. And the idea of a government in theory is like we're banding together as people to solve problems that are hard to solve as individuals. Like that's, yeah. that's the whole idea. Well put. And 
that's why we have regulation because it's like, hey, now that group of people can form and exploit everybody else. We need someone to look out for us. But how do we, yeah, who watches the watchman? Like, how do we, how do we have someone protect us when they're just at the mercy of all these other powers as well? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like people, like you said, are very afraid of government overreach, but those folks also tend to be the people who back the blue yep. and support the troops. And it's like, who, when they come and take your guns, who are you going to have to shoot? Yeah. Like, I don't know. Well, I think there's, um, there's something really interesting about you said about like about truth and poetry and that poetry can be totally abstract. And yet it's like a key that slides into your heart and unlocks something that you just go, Oh my God. Yeah. That's like a beautiful, that's a beautiful thing. And I recognize it and I feel it. And I like know in this deep sense. And I'm thinking about that in comparison to if you ever try and argue with a conspiracy theorist is a good example, but it doesn't even have to be that extreme, but someone who's like done way more research, but their research is very dubious. Mm. So like you're trying to have a debate about something and they're just spitting numbers at you and this and that, and well, this, this report and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, fuck man, I don't believe any of that's true, but I don't know how to argue that with you. Like, right. like I'm not going to go through this fucking YouTube documentary frame by frame and like try and, okay, where is this report and where do I find a more trustworthy report that debunks this report so I can start to pull this apart? Yeah. Like, and I don't, so it's, it's this weird thing where one is like all analytics and nonsense. And then the other one is abstract language, but like truth and resonance. Yeah. When, um, when someone comes at you with like, uh, let me think, um, a whole bunch of data points as to why it's good to over police black neighborhoods or why, um, you know, women should stay at home. Mm -hmm. Let's take you know, one of those and data point, data point, data point. How do you, even though they have all this data, I'm asking, I'm actually asking you, how do you know that you are still right? I know. And, and that's like, that's like, I'm like, like, that's the thing where it gets tricky is that I, I don't like being in those situations because I'm not a huge fucking nerd that sits around trying to just like read weird, obscure conspiracy blogs, memorizing numbers and statistics. And, but what happens inside you? It's ultimately like I like like I'm aware that it's 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 a vague impression of what I've absorbed in my own programming that kind of makes me think, yeah, I think that's true, or like I think that's a load of bullshit. Like I have a general framework where I understand that there are conspiracies. We've unmasked plenty of them. The CIA has done a lot of fucked up shit. Like not all of that is wrong, but I'm very distrustful of people that have it's kind of like, you know, like, you know, Occam's razor where like the simplest explanation is the most likely mm. it's like a lot of these things where I'm like, you know, Sandy hook. Okay. So <laughs> they, they fake shooting an elementary school to take away your guns. Okay, let's let's take that as a premise. All right. I can still buy a gun. Yeah. I'm in Kentucky. I could go to my friend's house that has a gun and say, can I have a gun? He could give me that gun. I'm now a legal gun owner. I don't have to file paperwork. Ooh. You can just give someone a gun in this state. So 
this vast conspiracy that thought the best way to take away people's guns was to stage a fake shooting at an elementary school has not even succeeded. That's where I'm so confused. It's like, oh, yeah. if these conspiracies are so all powerful and all knowing, how is it that 4chan message boards and YouTube documentaries are like unraveling them? Like, shouldn't, you know, everyone that posts on Reddit unmasking the lizard people conspiracy, just get a bullet in the back of the head and the conspiracy moves on. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's an excellent point. So that's your tool of like, okay, if you're right, where where's where's the receipts? I mean, my, my tool is bad. I'm, I'm openly admitting it, that like my tool is very much sort of gut and just based off of like my, my background and understanding of the world and the limited information I can process. And also trying to appreciate the ways in which I don't know things and I'm likely to be wrong. Like, I don't think I have all the answers, but... No, I think um, in lieu of doing a bunch of research, which takes a lot of time, uh, your mind state is very, very good. It's like, okay, uh, here's what I get. How my brain translates it is, okay, um, I hear what you're saying. I hear all the data points. Um, I am open to seeing the results. Uh, but not just the results you want to provide, but the results in an omnidirectional lens. Yeah. Um, my tool, I don't think is as good. My tool is I look for parallels mm. in things that I do understand. So like with say like the Dave Chappelle special, which I haven't seen yet, I'll, I'll watch it soon. Um, it was like people were saying, you know, that this is not like, like, you know, basically Dave Chappelle is not wrong. Uh, for speaking about trans people the way that he's speaking about trans people. And, you know, the research, I guess, would be to actually watch the special, which yeah. I have not yet done because uh, that takes time and brain cells. But I progress. What I do is, okay, Dave Chappelle, what has he been sensitive about? What has Dave Chappelle done where um, – like if uh, if conservatives disagreed, um, they would call Dave Chappelle a snowflake. Like, I don't necessarily believe he's a snowflake for this, but, you know, what would the conservatives call him a snowflake for? Because, the, you know, they definitely think that the trans people are being snowflakes. Um, and it was Dave Chappelle quitting the Dave Chappelle show, mm -hmm. right? The Chappelle show. And why did he do that? In part because he thought that they weren't laughing with him and with black people, but at him and at black people. So then like my question is, so the people who fought, who enjoy the new Dave Chappelle set, are they laughing with trans people or at trans people? Like it d does, do the trans community feel like, yeah, we too think this is yeah. hilarious. Now I think, um, in some point in his special, he was like, well, I, I, I'm not transphobic. I have a trans friend. Right. And, you know, maybe Candace Owens thinks like some, uh, anti-black racist jokes are, are, uh, are funny. Uh, but that, you know, just because, you know, some racists have a Candace Owens black friend, you know, that, that, that doesn't mean you're laughing with black people as an entirety. Um, so it's like, is the vast majority of the trans community laughing with Dave Chappelle or are they just being laughed at, you know? And it's like, well, Hey, he can say anything he wants. Great. 
uh, then the racists can laugh at black people as much as they want. Like, I, I try to find the consistency and why I don't think that's as efficient as your tool is because, um, you know, people can just say it's not the same because because like, you know, no parallels are 100% parallel. Like we'd have to be talking about another Dave Chappelle in a parallel universe for it to be a perfect parallel. Uh, but yeah, I just, it, it kind of like rattles me and I feel like I'm constantly being pushed around by it. Whereas you, you it seems to me like you're just more open and waiting for the receipts and the receipts that they're, they're hiding. You're, yeah. like, you're like, you have like an IRS mentality <laughs> of it. I, yeah. Um, I think it's really hard right now because we know there's so much, there's a glut of information. Hmm. And so it's no longer possible to operate from the same foundation. Like, you know, you, you do slam poetry, but you can imagine like debate club. Yeah. If we had debate club and we both got a huge folder that said, here's all of the information. And we had two weeks to research that and come up with our positions and then have this debate. And we can't bring up anything that's not in that folder. So you can mm. bring up something that I'm saying, well, actually this other part of the folder discredits it, but we have the same pool. That's a very different conversation than you and I each show up with our stacks of folders and you have no idea what in my folder I've made up, you know, according to the Brookings Institute, 10% of, uh, of police are not racist. Mm. Okay. Like that's a number, but like, where did that come from? Is that a real thing? Like you don't have time to like do that and dig it apart. So then everything we're just spitting just nonsense at each other and no one has any way to like stop and parse what's what mm. I think, I think as I thought about it more, my tool kind of reminds me of like how I decide what drugs I want to do, which <laughs> is looking at the communities that do those drugs. Mm. And it's not, you know, it's not black and white. Like there are idiot stoners that I don't want to hang out with. Um, there are probably people that are very lovely heroin users that, you know, are functional in, in doing it. But I remember like you look at something like meth and I'm like, yeah, that seems like a group I don't want to hang out with. Like that seems like no bueno. And if I look at people that are kind of the more divisive, angry, hateful vibe in their politics, like I'm kind of like, I don't really want to go in that direction with them. Like, so, and in some ways that like that, that compass, I think also steers me away from like deep left communities where it's very hard line and very rigid and it has to be this or that because, um, I, I, re I remember like being 18 and having the realization that this was during the Bush years that the conservative Christian Bush fans had a consistent self image. No one is just like, I'm the bad guy. I'm doing this because I'm like, you know, the evil henchman. Everybody thinks that immigrants are pouring over the border and this is what we got to do. But if you look at some of those communities, it just doesn't seem very fun. Yeah. I sometimes, you know, I, what I see a lot is, um, I was saying like on the left and the, the Democrats and the left, we um, just need solidarity the way the Republicans have it. Like the Republicans uh, will defend Trump no matter what he does. Um, but recently, I think, um, pardon my memory, everybody, but uh, I think it was, was it Marjorie Taylor Greene? I don't really know her name, but yeah. she's like one of the- uh, Marjorie, yeah. Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think uh, it was her- um, and she was like, we need to impeach Biden. And I didn't, I didn't, you know, process it at all. I'm like, I'm, I'm more so like I'm, Republicans are going to Republican. Yeah. I'm more concerned about, um, you know, the corporate wing of the democratic party right now. But 
So I just ignored it, but it became hilarious. It came back up in my feed uh, because uh, a lot of people on the right are upset with her for saying impeach Biden because that means that they're acknowledging that Biden is president. Whoa. Yes. And in fact, they're calling her a socialist. Oh, yeah. So going back to what we were saying about, um, you know, things being discombobulated and, you know, conspiracy theories and da, 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 da. Like, I hope that myself included, we um, become more comfortable with saying what we actually want. And uh, even if it does seem too left or too extreme, um, it's like this will never like it's like a lot of people. Um, OK, I once knew us a, a, a far leftist who would not vote for Bernie because, um, you know, his um, his stance on on race and reparations wasn't the best. And I agree, you know, like uh, I was a Bernie fan, but I do think that he did suck balls in that department. But um, I was like, OK, cool. I mean, you know, he's trying to get like the, the ambulance costs lower. Uh, that'll affect, um, you know, underserved communities a, a lot. You know, we have more health issues. Um, so like even though, yeah, he doesn't want reparations, uh, it, it will inadvertently help uh, communities of color. And he was like, nope, not far enough. And I was yeah. like, OK, bet, do your thing. Yeah. But then they voted for Biden-Harris to mitigate mm. harm. And I was like, OK, wait, 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 wait. You know who would have mitigated more harm? <laughs> but I progress. Um, and he, or and a lot of people like that, are just afraid that we have to be more centrist and in order to be accepted. Like you can't go too far out there um, or they'll call you a socialist. They called Marjorie Taylor Greene a socialist. For saying impeach Biden, they're going to call you a socialist. No matter what. No matter what. And like, even and if, you, if you're the one of people who doesn't think socialism is bad, awesome, great. A lot of people in America do think socialism is bad. Um, and yeah, they're always going to call you that. <laughs> if they're going to call Marjorie Taylor Greene a socialist, they're going to call you one. They call, you know, they call Biden. Biden was like, what are you talking about? I beat the socialist. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like, you just can't. <laughs> I yeah. think a lot of it is basically so like my understanding of psychology is that you have like an emotional reaction to things first and then you come up with a conscious rationalization for that. Mm. So at a primal level, it's like I feel scared and threatened because that person's gay and they look at me and like you know the, the the unconscious thing happens first and then the rationalization comes up and i bet that you know if you took a far extreme leftist and a far extreme person on the right and like you know really drilled down there's probably similar emotions that are leading to these more extreme reactions and justifications um mm. and i wonder often if a lot of the problems that we're facing are just due to the way that our emotions are manipulated and our reactions are our rationalizations are like compounded by these by these other factors so that's a that's a roundabout way of getting into a thing that i want to ask you about because you are a poet who is also active on social media and one of the things that i noticed going to poetry open mics in new york city is 
you see a lot of raw emotional confessional stuff, mm. which is kind of cathartic, you know, just sitting there like where it's like, I'm having a bad week. And then you listen to someone talk about being super depressed and struggling with bipolar. And you're like, whoa, okay. Like everyone's struggling in different ways. And it, it's kind of cool to get, you know, that confessional window. Yeah. But I often would sit there and I was like, I wonder if there's an effect where you come and you see people say in a poem about being so depressed and suicidal and that leads to someone saying, oh, I really got to like amp up my poetry and like I got to kind of milk those feelings a little bit more. Or you're competing in a slam where there's literally like a win-loss and you see somebody go way more angry in their poem and win and you're like, oh, fuck, like I have to hype up my own anger. So I wonder if that's something that you've seen in poetry because I think that's kind of what we see on social media where the algorithm steps in and says, mm. this thing was really angry. This thing was really sad. Both of these are going to do better than someone who was like, my fiance and I went furniture shopping on Wednesday. <laughs> like, Yeah, I don't know if poetry is immune to it. Like, uh, It gets more clicks if it makes people angry, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I'm curious, like, what patterns you saw in slams of, like, were there certain emotions or styles that you saw um, yeah, kind but, of ripple out and then take over and people emulate because they're like, oh, that's the winning formula. Yeah, the um, huge huge problem in uh, poetry and especially slam is um, they call it like trauma porn. Mm. And um, yeah, like that does tend to do well. It's like the, the poems do get like more and more uh, visceral and painful. The, uh, the criticism is it's like we're traumatizing ourselves for points and all this and there, you know, there is, there is something to that. The thing is, it's like, I've definitely fallen uh, prey to that and I've justified it. And I still justify it by saying like, none of my poems are false. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, just the, these are things that, uh, the algorithm of slam, i.e. the judges, um, has allowed me to explore and be rewarded and uh yeah because like otherwise it's like I'm, I'm working on this poem about how a lot of people think poets and artists are more creative and it's just like no i, I believe everybody is creative it's just everybody is busy and we just kind of lucked out and uh due to some life choices uh that uh allow us to be busy by asking these questions and examining these things but it's like everyone has these traumas and stuff but if you are, you know, in finance or if you're a nurse, you, you, you don't have time to explore your traumas like that. And now for poets, it's like you don't have time to explore your joy mm -hmm. like that. Uh, but then there are geniuses like uh, this poet named Roya Marsh who in uh, New York. Uh, uh, she's um, a big proponent of black joy and uh, makes merchandise about black joy and statuses and tweets about black joy, but also slam poems. And I say slam poems as in it's catered to do well in a slam while simultaneously being truthful poems about uh, black joy. And that poem or those poems will um, do really well or, or really poorly depending on when they're placed. But um, part of slam and maybe this can translate to online stuff as well, is um, 
feeling the room and what does the room need? And if, if trauma porn and, or trauma pimping is going to lead a whole bunch of poets to have these sad, painful poems and that's going to drive them, um, it's going to become like, like anything else, like po poets tend to speak like this because it scores well. It's mm -hmm. not just trauma. It's also other things like, um, you can't see cause it's a podcast, but like I'm doing like some motions that a lot of poets do, like the, have similar choreography cadences, um, inflections, even dressing similar. Um, but if you feel the room, it's like, wow, it's been trauma, 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 trauma. This is the spot where my funny poem goes. Yeah. You know, and then it, and then, and then everything that's traumatic after that is going to look done. Yeah. So maybe there's a way to make the trauma look done, but then that ties back into people tuning out, right? Mm -hmm. Like I said, you know, when I talk about love, their ears perk up and do we want to be the genius who reads the room and says they need joy and then they tune out to the climate change or the other, the future traumas I have? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's so much in there and yeah. you imagine the reverse where everyone's poem is about joy. Mm -hmm. Everyone's poem is about what a wonderful day they, they've had and their heart filling with love. That's eventually going to create a world like that we kind of saw on social media where it's like hashtag blessed and everyone's like, whoa, this is really phony and I'm, fake. I'm so sorry to interrupt. I just, uh, I want to be cl uh, clear because Roy Marsh is a friend. Uh, I feel like this kind of could have been convoluted in, in someone's understanding. I, I, I do believe like black joy and joy in other forms as well, but especially black joy is important and revolutionary in a lot of ways because I, being black is tough mm -hmm. and uh, like especially black women you know it's like I just see like over and over and over the people that I end up looking up to and aspiring to in terms of art and you know um, uh, activist work end up being black women and so it's like if black women are, are doing all this work black joy is especially is extremely needed or the climate changes and important stuff, quote unquote, can't be fought. So I just want to make sure I clarified that. But yeah, please continue. No, 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 absolutely. I think that's a, that's an important clarification. I think the problem is what I've called in other points, like the authenticity crisis, where black joy is very important. But then you could see how that that one wave of joy would then lead to the imitators, which then leads to a feeling that things are phony and false, mm. which then leads to the counter reaction, similar to the way that like trauma is important to acknowledge and heal and recognize, but one person being vulnerable and sharing their trauma leads to somebody else sharing it because they want the spotlight, which yeah. leads to a whole pattern, which leads to somebody else saying, now I have to break away by being real and saying, hey, I'm not just this fucking traumatized person that just like stumbles through the world in agony. I experience joy and now I'm going to talk about it. Yeah. So I think it's kind of hard to, with this um, mimicry that goes on to figure out like you said, like where in the point of the night are we where mm. it's it's okay to change the direction or to add a different voice that rings yeah. true. One of my role models is Mahogany Brown and um, Mahogany's led more teams to um, like uh, slam tournament final stages than anybody. Um, I even saw her win coaching two teams at the same time in uh, the college circuit. 
Um, it, it was yeah, they, they, both her teams got first and second out of like all these college teams around the nation. But Mahogany doesn't always care about winning the slam. Uh, there was this, we were on final stage once and group pieces, poems with multiple poets uh, were the move. But she set, uh, she sent up Tanya Ingram uh, alone because that was the poem that the room needed to hear, mm. you know? And so I think, you know, like I said, competing against the greatest slam poets um, used to be, and it still is like exciting to me, but I think as I realized there are much like, instead of like friendly artistic rivalries and sometimes those rivalries actually become like enemies somehow, whoops, how did that happen? This is literally just like art and we're not even doing battle rap attacking each other. Yeah. How does this happen? Uh, Got to watch that. But um, the, the bigger enemy is, you know, climate change and systemic racism, systemic sexism, homophobia, transphobia. These are these, let's be, let's, let's, let's beat them in a slam. So, Part of it is identifying like what wins the night in the money and the trophies, but who are we really slamming against? Do you think our political system would be better if instead of debates, it was slam poetry contests? I think they're really similar, um, to be frank, other than the fact that like, you know, you can interrupt one another. But like, hmm. I see what you're saying though, like more specifically, like let's just say they actually had to um, you know, perform well. Um, is that something that's necessary for a presidential candidate? Um, or, you know, any political candidate? I think, yeah, actually, because like people who, who can't perform well and speak well, but still have a lot to say, I think, it's like, uh, so like I don't have the best posture uh -huh. and that has a negative effect on me. Does it mean that I'm like a lesser person because of my crappy posture? I have yes. a bad diet. You said, yes, <laughs> ah! right. I have a bad diet and that affects everything. Like, do we want a president with a bad diet? Mm -hmm. Do we want a president who isn't in tune with their internal traumas? And, um, you know, I, I don't, I barely believe in chakras and stuff, yeah. but like who ha who's in touch with those spiritual parts of themselves like we, we would prefer that that would be you know like just like a president with a better diet is gonna you know you know have more cognitive ability etc like yeah i think it, i think that that could be a bonus actually and metaphor allows a president to see things from different perspectives yes <laughs> i mean if we just had like some trials and it's like anyone can sign up for the trials uh -huh. and then it's like you're doing some american ninja warrior stuff but uh -huh. then you're also writing persuasive essays and then you're also like doing these challenges that are more abstract that show like your amount of compassion or decision making or whatever and then we're like this person won how about dance battles dance battles hillary yeah. clinton would win she, hillary clinton would be the president oh yeah the mean dab a crumpin hillary clinton <laughs> I can see it vividly. Yeah. Um, let's talk about a spell. Okay. So I think this has been a very fascinating conversation where we've been using words, dancing around the ideas of how words influence politics and art and also mm. um, 
both talking about and shying away from the the elephant in the room of the dancing Hillary Clinton, the dancing Hillary Clinton of the of the apocalypse of uh, of encroaching. Yeah, <laughs> the, the mascot for climate change is now a, a dancing Hillary Clinton that's yes. like dabbing and setting California Hot on sauce fire in my bag. There we go. Um, so, what is something that you think the listeners can do to kind of tune into their own words or listening to other words? Um, to maybe have that effect that we we talked about at the beginning of of changing that that one person in the audience and helping to start make make the waves. And this is something that we're going to do right now. This is something that's like homework for them. So it mm-hmm. could be like, hey, go write down, you know, a two line poem that you're going to tell to one other person. Or it could be like you talked about last night. How many conversations are filled with poetry? And it's like, hey, for the next week notice the beautiful things that the people in your life say and just write them down on your phone and make a poem that's compiled of that. Something along those lines. I think I got it. How about, and I'll join y'all in this. And if you're listening to this in the future, um, you know, we're connected. Oh, wow. I can like feel y'all in the future. Just just so you know, nobody's listening to it in the past. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's listening to it in the future. That that could have been very helpful, but uh, maybe next time uh, we'll get the technology for it. If you're listening to this in the past, just pay the fucking tea tax. It doesn't go well. (laughs) Let's just try it a different way. I mean, they got rid of slavery first. Just saying. All right. Let's not start our days looking at social media Mm. or the news like or emails like your boy does i'm touching to my chest and um let's start our day writing a full page in our journal doesn't have to be a poem doesn't have to be good doesn't have to be a big page uh, it can be the size of like one of those fortune cookie slips yeah. and like if you if you're like laughing right now and smirking and you think that's cheating cheating is not writing anything at all Oh, this is a wizard podcast. We're Uh, very into cheating as. (laughs) (laughs) So find all the creative ways. You know what I mean? Uh, You know, your finger, um, the, the, you know, the, the palm side of your index finger could be your page. Just um, you decide what the the size of the page is. What are the dimensions of it? And fill it because, you know, you've got a lot of thoughts going on and you've got work and you've got responsibilities Um, But, you know, I promise you that those thoughts are still important. You had them a lot when you were younger and you still have them. And they're probably supercharged now with all of the wisdom and experience that you've gleaned uh, over the years and all of the things you've had to overcome. So how cool would it be to revisit that? So let's um, let's fill uh, a page at the start of every day. And then we can check our emails and then we can check the news. I'm all about this. Yeah, I'll do it too. Awesome. <laughs> Will you read us a poem to, to take us out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will totally do that. It's a short one. It's written on his fortune cookie finger right now. So. Right. <laughs> fortune cookie finger. I love the alliteration there. All right. The trees were full of yellow butterflies this morning. Kind of look like a thousand dancing flowers. And it, it was okay. As a kid, I would see beautiful things that adults said were breathtaking. But I could still breathe, so I was a little disappointed. 
Not every aesthetically pleasing sight is life-changing. Sometimes it's just a vibe. Like, wow, I wish I could light this moment up and smoke it. Like, this sight makes life feel more important than it actually is. And I like that. Or maybe this is how life was meant to be. And I like that. Or maybe artists can make life more like this moment. And I really like that. I like that too. Hey. <laughs> Thank you, Anthony McPherson. This is my absolute pleasure. This was a blast. To hear Anthony McPherson use more words, you can check him out on TikTok at McPherson Poetry, where he reads poems and makes fun of racists, which is a pretty good way to use your words. And for more of the wordy wizardry that is this podcast as a ritual, visit patreon.com slash this podcast as a ritual where I'm pretty much always producing words. I mean, as a wizard, words are one of the main things I do. I'm creating words right now. So if you like words about words and words about wizards, patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual is going to get you going. And if you would like to share some words of your own, it would be pretty helpful if you go into iTunes and leave us a five-star review. I normally don't ask for this sort of thing because it's annoying, but also it works. And it's a very small thing for you to do. So if you've listened to this whole episode and you've made it all the way this far, why not just take a moment to use your words for good and help out a wizard by leaving us a very nice review, which I will read and enjoy. So you're using your magic to make my day. And as a token of my appreciation, I'll give you these magic words that you probably learned long, long ago. Thank you. <laughs>